Welcome back to the show. Returning to Ask a Leader are my guests for the full hour, Ellen Mackey and Gina Chavez. Ellen is a senior ecologist with the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California and was on assignment to the Council for Watershed Health, where she conducts field mapping native vegetation. Ellen's other role is leader of the Metropolitan Water District's Union of Women's Caucus. Also returning, as I said, is Gina Chavez, water pump plant mechanic, one of the score of women who are challenging the workplace culture at the Met, featured in the coverage by Adam Elmaharek's investigative work in the Los Angeles Times. We are resuming their case following the release last week of the Shaw Group's much anticipated report and update on, and I'm quoting the title, Board Directed Independent Review of Workplace Concerns, or that was the agenda item I'm quoting, and that board directed is going to be an operative expression in this interview. 500,000 billable hours later is this report that warrants our close attention. So much to unpack here today. Gina comes to us from Lake Havasu City, Arizona, and Ellen from San Fernando Valley. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Ellen Mackey and Gina Chavez. Thanks for having us, Claudia. Thanks, Claudia, for having us again. Thank you, both Ellen first and Gina second, you heard, listeners. So let's get both of your initial responses to the Shaw Group's report, both the timing and the content. Okay, well, I'm gonna start off, this is Ellen. I was disappointed because the treatment is, first of all, really superficial. And the feeling that I got from it, to be kind, was that it was a first or second draft of an executive summary. Executive summaries, because we review EIRs, which are sometimes thousands of pages, a good executive summary can be 100, 200 pages. So 70 pages doesn't seem like that long to me. And there's so much information missing, some gone, some confused in its presentation, so it's not clear, I would have sent it back all marked up. I would not have considered this a finished edited report. And the timing to speak to that, Ellen, because I think when there was an additional appropriation to the Shaw Group to continue their work and that signaled like, oh, there's more work to do, but it seemed like there was an acceleration of the submission date. Just if you could talk to that. I already said on the show several times, I, if they're going to do this correctly and well the first time, then they would have taken to at least the end of the summer to do their investigation. And then maybe by the end of the year, have a report. I think that the Shaw Law Group was pressured by the board through different board meetings to finish up their report quickly more quickly than it would have been because they should have taken to the end of the summer to do their investigation and then probably to the end of the year for their report. This feels like a really short report. My first reaction was, where's the rest of it? There's stuff missing. Things are stated and then they move on. There's no conclusions drawn from them. The conclusions that they do have don't follow from the information that they just presented. So I'm not sure what technical writer assisted them if they had one at all, because it looks like there was no technical writer who would not have allowed this to go out. So that's just some of the things that I have wrong with it. 
Right. Okay. That, I'm just talking about the general impressions initially, because we'll, we're going to unpack as much as we can in this hour together. Yeah, so, I would have thought, thought that for $8,000 a page, we would have gotten a finished edited report. And this just feels like the first or second draft of an executive summary. And they do not know how to even present information in graphs. So I was very disappointed by the look of it. Even the table of contents is radically short and it is not helpful at all. So yeah, they would have gotten a C minus from me if this had been a second year college student writing this report. Gina, your impression initially. And when did you see it, Gina, for the first time? Did they release it to the Met employees earlier than they did online? No, and even if they did, I wouldn't be able to get it because they actually have me out of the company email right now. So I don't have that kind of contact. And this is nine months now that you've been on paid administrative leave. Yeah, I'm going on nine months paid administrative leave. So um, you're out of the loop with the company communications, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I don't get the direct emails anymore from the company if they are bringing up anything new or like sending out any information. So I'm only going off of like when the board announced when they were going to release it. So I just, you know, kept checking that day. For me, it was very confusing because their overall was like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. But then when you really read it, it's like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff wrong here. And I feel like they really hyper focused on me because I spoke with them. And I spoke out the most and they really brushed over Lee and Miranda majorly. And Lee refused to talk to the Shaw group because they did not want to put themselves through all this stress of going and reliving all this if it was for nothing. And they is and Lee's pronoun so that we distinguish they from the district commissioners. So that's yeah. what you mean. Okay. Just to re yeah. remind listeners. Yes. They like to go by they, them. So, you know, with them not even being interviewed, they didn't even put that in there. And we were supposed to be some of their main focuses because we were the ones that came forward to the board. Even without speaking to Lee, they didn't even provide Lee's nine page letter. So, you know, you don't need the victim there to do an investigation or to see what was going on. And they just left out a lot of that information for the victims like Lee and Miranda. So... Like Ellen said, there was a lot of stuff missing and the overall result did not reflect what was in the details of the report. Part of my concern when I first read this, especially the conclusions, is this is gonna be a tremendous amount of damage done to people who felt brave enough to come forward to tell their stories and were excited to tell their stories. And then those stories were lost. Lee felt that this would be a waste of their time they didn't want to relive it, as Gina just said. And then, of course, we felt justified. This is exactly what Lee said would happen at the beginning of the year. This isn't going to result in anything. It's going to be the same old, same old. And it turns out, yes, it is. Much of what could have been pulled from their nine-page letter is not in there. But they did focus on Gina because I believe they had three interviews with Gina. So that's reflected in the length of the presentation. Meanwhile, Lee King gets six sentences from a nine page letter that Shaw Law Group gave them six sentences to summarize their story. Meanwhile, Miranda received about four or five sentences. 
which is very uh, critical because of the fact that this is the demographic that Shaw Group calls out as the one that has been the subject of the most toxic workplace culture conditions. So it would but seem they said like- it wasn't. They said it wasn't though. That's what they came back and said, no, it's not. And yet they captured the quotes from the very people who voluntarily came forward to tell their story and yet could not stop themselves from just spewing forth some hate. So they managed through their own quotes to characterize the environment that these young women had to live in for 10 to 15 years. If you can imagine walking into that every day with, and it's not just these people, it's pretty widespread that, yeah, we go down to the border and shoot illegals and blacks, especially if they're Democrats, that's the attitude that damaging, erosive work environment that they had to walk into day after day after day, it takes its toll. People are traumatized. And the Shaw Law Group completely failed to capture that at all. And I wanna break it down in some of the kind of language that we're using and we're, we're trying to stay in some generalities here. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests here on Ask a Leader are Ellen Mackey, Metropolitan Water District Senior Ecologist, and Gina Chavez, Water Pump Plant Mechanic. And we're talking about the Shaw Report presented this last week at the Metropolitan Water District, the Commissioner's Board there. And the recording of this interview is July 31st. So. Let's talk about then the time frame that, I mean, you're alluding to that a little bit right now, Ellen, but I wanted to know what you expected. Last October was going to be the time frame, the purview of the Shaw Group versus the Shaw Group claiming at the rollout of the report that it was only going to be the last three years that they would consider. I thought when we talked about this in October and we talked about it November, December, and when I spoke with people who asked me if it was safe, I said that our impression was that the Shaw Law Group was going to conduct an investigation and that would go far and wide as it need to, and they would follow the witnesses and the evidence wherever it led. And you can go back to my comments, and that's exactly what I said. Unfortunately, if that was not the case, no one corrected it. And so we were led to believe, and the people that we spoke to, and people approached me with text, email, and snail mail to ask about doing an interview with the Shaw Law Group, and all of that information is lost. The Shaw Law Group managed to embarrass the desert people with their own attitudes, yes, but they could have also characterized all of the people who were brave enough to come forward after many, many years of keeping it to themselves just living with that bitterness. They came forward, spoke with the Shaw Law Group. I don't have any quotes from them. Where are the quotes from the people who came forward? None of it was captured. So the report itself didn't follow the evidence. It didn't follow the witnesses. And I was really disappointed at the uneven handed approach of the report itself, because I can hear at least two or three voices in there that accounts for that uneven handedness, because you wrote this and then this person wrote that and then we'll just put it all together into a report and we'll give it to the board because we want to get this done. Well, it's really obvious if you're using different words for different groups of people, it was really obvious to me there was no technical writer involved in this. So I was very disappointed. I was disappointed with the amount of time. If they had at least taken to the end of the summer, I would feel a little better that they were at least struggling with the report, but it didn't appear that way at all. Well, I was, I'm, I'm extremely disappointed. 
So, excuse me, I think for shorthand for listeners who haven't had a chance to look at the report, but since we're all rate payers, it's incumbent of us to understand how our rates, our, our fees that we're paying for using the water in Southern California, we need to know, we under, need to understand what's happening here is that when I first read this report, it reminded me so much of when William Barr, then Attorney General William Barr took possession of the Mueller report and put out his own executive statement. It wasn't even a summary, his own executive statement without giving everybody a chance to see all the data that was coming in and the the larger report. So is that a fair characterization of what the Shah might've pulled off here? Absolutely, because if you look at the executive summary, it's almost embarrassing. Um, They use the word white, there's no widespread Excuse me, let me find the exact words. Does not support a finding of current widespread EEO issues at the district in spite of everything that they just wrote about. They're finding it's not widespread. What they should have done is say, if we're gonna use the word widespread, here's what that means. That it is geographically distributed across the district because we've established that it's at many of our sites, but it didn't reach a percentage threshold. I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't know what widespread means. They never talked about it. Are there other categories they could have used? Maybe it was acute across the district. It was spotty across the district. What does widespread mean? They just threw it out there as a word without telling us what the criteria for using that word means because the damage it has wrought so far with people coming forward saying, see, I told you this wasn't gonna be useful, has been tremendous. So I'm telling our supporters, I am disappointed and a little pissed and, but not discouraged We have the state audit coming forward as well. And even though the Shaw Law Group only addressed three issues, the state audit is looking at 18 sets of questions. And they range from what happened with the last audit through personnel policies, employee evaluations, EEO complaints, workplace bullying, because Metropolitan has no workplace bullying policy because they've resisted it, non-disclosure agreements, settlement agreements, safety program, the use of personal safety equipment, employee housing, MWD training, MWD recruitment, bidding, promotion transfers, all of those and more are gonna be examined with the state audit. One thing we discovered in this last go round with the Shaw Law Group is that we were disappointed because we heard from one of the investigators that, oh, Metropolitan is not gonna be happy with this report. And I did ask while we were waiting once for another employee to join us, compared with other agencies, is this really bad? Are we just, you know, we're so focused on this that we're, we're not able to see objectively how we compare with other agencies. And the response was, no, this is really one of the worst we've ever seen. Well, that's not what came out in the report. So it looks like they're, impartiality was compromised by the amount of face time that they spent with HR personnel, with legal, and with upper management when they went out to desert facilities. So face time will impact your impartiality because suddenly this is a person. You're not just talking to information and you can go to lunch, you can go for coffee, And meanwhile, a manager, a desert section manager, who's not very impressive in his decision-making skills can say, oh, we're really trying to move things along when he was the one who set off Lee King 
when Lee King used a rainbow fist in their signature block and they received hate speech back and the entire desert received it as well. And Lee has not been back to the district since because it's so traumatized them. This manager called and made it so much worse and talked about transvestites rather than transgender. He was utterly clueless in what he was talking about. And he totally missed that the problem wasn't the rainbow fist during pride month. The problem was the hate speech that went desert wide to 150 employees and embarrassed and impacted Lee's ability to walk back into that work environment. So these are the managers we're dealing with. And yet they were the people who were having FaceTime with the Shaw Law Group and telling them, no, we're really trying to make a difference. No, you're not. Because what's shown in one of the graphs is that the number of complaints in 2020 to the present has increased by 50%. So, so that's, how that's a problem with, it? yeah. The, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out a couple of these factors. And so there's a real problem in they're not disaggregating the managers from the rank and file, the men from the women, when certain appraisals of the workplace are surveyed. So, and there's a, it's a presumptuous interpretation about how the bar charts break down with strongly agree, agree somewhat unsure and disagree, disagree strongly, that there's enough to assume that agree somewhat means that the workplace culture is a-okay, is not digging very far. And to what you're bringing up, Ellen, and what Gina may be wanting to express here too, is a sophisticated investigation should be able to see through when a manager is saying nothing happening here and can hear the platitudes and can sort of press for more data and look, instead of putting in their report, they're saying that the claims were not substantiated in very, very vacuous kinds of terms. It's very presumptuous, it's very vague, and it's very general in what they're assessing the workplace to be. I agree completely. And part of it too, part of my disappointment, just on a, t on a technical writer level, the way that the survey participants, the interviewees was presented in all of those graphs was not presented well because they don't stick to one set of data. So when you're talking about Metropolitans, all their employees at eight, over 1800 employees, if you're going to present that, present all of those graphs so that we know what the population is or each graph, which by the way, should be a separate figure and also listed in the table of contents. Each one of those graphs should tell you what the population is and then should also not just stick to percentages because that's a way to mislead with statistics. The distinction is blurred between the number of employees, the universe is the employees, the universe is the respondents. Sometimes you don't know which they're talking about. And that, exactly. that and really undermines the, the kind of validity and the, the respectability of a report. It's supposed to be clear. It's not clear. Everyone I've talked to says it's confusing. Well, I can tell you why it's confusing. They should have just stuck to the survey then. When you're talking about the survey results, there were over 1,500 people. That's your population size. And then you can break it down when you're talking about the 1,500 so you know what your universe is there. Then when you're talking about interviewees, that's a smaller part because that was, I don't know if it was 150 to 190, and then I had 210 people ask for interviews. I'm not even sure they know 
at that point. Right. So that was confusing. And every single graph should tell you what the population is and the numbers of those percentages, exactly what they are. Because sometimes, even though they say it's 20%, it may be three people. Other times it's 300 people. That's the problem with this, how professionally the Shaw group would like to be comporting here is either it's a rush job or it's a filter job for their client. The client cut the check for this group and it wasn't the workforce. So that, that's that structural problem. But we don't know if the rush job is what obscures their findings or whether it was the client that let them know we, we, we just can't have, we can't be implicated in not making sufficient progress. And okay. the, the threshold, it's never clear What's an acceptable level of toxicity in workplace? If people, if there's a percentage that say they're in trouble at the workplace, that you know, is that acceptable to have 14% say it, 40% say it? I mean, is Shaw Group sort of hiding behind what is really unacceptable at all to be in such a large bureaucracy? Correct. We always say one person is one too many, but, it, but there's they don't quite, quite come out and not, they don't own that shortcoming. They, they yeah. are very, very obfuscating that. And I would say that I believe that there were a lot of forces working here. I don't believe that the ethics office pressed them. I don't believe that. I do think they had autonomy to do this. But I think because they were rushed, and I'm not sure whether they ever hire a technical writer, because I can tell you, I've spent days going through this note saying, you can't say this. No, this isn't even clear. I don't even know what you're talking about. And trying to make numbers add up for percentages that are just thrown in there. And I have no idea what they're talking about. It's confusing because they made it confusing. So did they deliberately make it confusing? Possibly. Well, that's or an important know, question. And it's a standard that is really incumbent of all of us to maintain in this. It was a $500,000 outlay rate payers. And it's also, it's employment justice on the line here, that if there isn't going to be a rigorous examination, there's a public, the employees and the ratepayers that are not served by a short changed court submitted. So another omission I wanna talk about is where the breakdown of where the transgressions may have occurred, was it with the Shaw Group surveyed, whether it's with the coworkers or the immediate managers, but I'm concerned that omitted in their analysis is anywhere up the hierarchy, whether the right at the commissioner level, that these transgressions can happen, they can hop over direct reports and they're not picking that up. And we all know that there are board members that in their capacities on their districts where they are the chair and they're serving on those boards, we know they are witnessing many sexual harassment, sexual assault transgressions, and they are reappointing those general managers. So I'm concerned, and you can too talk about that the source for misogyny, the source for micro and macroaggressions, it's not just the immediate employee. It can be all the way up the chain of command. Well, I will tell you that one of the first things when we started sending emails through the Women's Caucus and signing our name to it, and Gina will remember this, we went to email academy and I said, one of the reasons you're not getting anywhere when you're complaining about these issues is you're just going through to the very perpetrators and you're asking the perpetrators for assistance. So 
First thing I said is you need to email all the way up the chain of command. And we went to AGMs. We went to Devin Upadia. We went to Shane Chapman. And we were like two to three large, long emails. And I said, all right, we're going to Jeff Keitlinger. So none of executive management can say that they were not aware that this was happening. They were very much aware. No one's off the hook. And that's the reason I did that is because I wanted to be able to say, no, they knew about it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this already with Adele in place, which gives me some hope. We've already solved a crisis problem just by me texting him saying, I need to talk with you. He called. We chatted for like five minutes. It was like a West Wing conference. Um, He said, here's what I'm going to do. And I said, good, let me know. And it was done within hours. It was over. We could, I could go to the top and say, here's the issue. I'm really concerned about this. And he said, okay, what do I need to do? And we worked it out and it had an effect. So the GM has a huge impact on it. And the new GM we're hoping continues with this kind of problem solving. But I'm afraid that with the the assistant general manager still in place, Shane and Devin, that that could slow down. Those two people are direct competitors of Adele. And if he leaves them there, you're leaving your competitors there who can sabotage anything you want to do. And if the Shaw report observes that there was a very divided board that finally appointed at a second round of voting, Adel Haj Khalil, that if they call out the divided boards voting on that, that should signal that all is not well in the workplace, that there's not a commitment throughout the leadership to reform, that there's division in the culture, there's division in the leadership. And that should have been an explosive sort of an investigation within this investigation of what that portends, that it makes any aspirational goals, strictly aspirational, there is no really sincere investigation of how to operationalize improvement of the workplace culture. It's only aspirational. It's not operational at all in this report. I'm not even sure it's aspirational. I've called it political theater because I think that that's what Shane considers it. I mean, he doesn't, he wouldn't use those words, but it is essentially political theater for him and burnishing his resumes as he was going for the GM job. That's all it was. It's checking boxes. Exactly. That's what he's always doing is checking boxes. Oh, was I on a diverse, you know, council of people? Yes, I was. But was he wholeheartedly into it? No, he wasn't. He was just there checking a box on his resume. That's how we feel about him. And with the leadership being so divided, I mean, we could see that at the board, especially with general counsel yelling at board members. That was this last week, folks. That was this last week. Yes. This last special operations personnel and technology committee. They had the special law group report meeting this last week. And towards the end there, you can hear the general counsel yelling and talking over board members who are supposedly supposed to be their boss. They're the superiors. Yeah, they're the superiors. And she's totally acting inappropriate with her superiors. So how do you think this general counsel is going to act with their subordinates. That's just a little piece of what we heard some of her subordinates have to deal with. So this is a regular occurrence with some of these, you know, higher up. So you're talking about all these aggressions. Well, there's a little snippet of right there of what these people have to deal with with some of these managers. 
and um, executive managers, I should say. For those of you who've just joined us, you're hearing now Gina Chavez. She's a water pump plant mechanic at the Metropolitan Water District. And mainly we're hearing from Ellen Mackey, Metropolitan Water District senior ecologist and leader of the AFSCME's Union's Women's Caucus. And we're talking about the Shaw Group's report that was released last week, and they presented it before the OPT at the Tuesday meeting this last week, the 28th of July. So I'm thinking of, we've heard in the presidential politics, we've watched how whether it's media or members of the Republican Party, when they're speaking publicly, they're speaking to the audience of one. We know who that is. When I heard the Shaw Group presentation last Tuesday, I heard them speaking to an audience of one, that being who will be the next client, the person, the entity, the institution with deep pockets to retain them. I didn't hear the Shaw Group talking to the clientele of the work force of the Metropolitan Water District. Do you wanna comment on that? Especially Gina. Well, they are the ones cutting the check, like you said earlier. So I feel like they're gonna have to lean towards that because if they made Metropolitan so unsatisfied and so unhappy, then how would they ever give them a good report to their next client? If they upset, you know, one client, they're coming in to do a job, but are they clearly going to do that job fully? even though they're investigating their boss. You know what I mean? So if you're investigating your boss, are you really going to investigate him that closely? Especially if he's going to be handing you out the money. And I think that's why this, this report was not to the full capacity it should have been. Plus, you know, that whole thing with the overall widespread that they didn't agree with, like Ellen was going back, like throwing all those numbers in there didn't make sense. And for someone like me, who's like more of a blue collar person, throwing all that language in there was like very confusing. But when you think about the overall picture and the numbers, they say, you know, majority of your workforce is male. So to make it a widespread, wouldn't you need like at least half of the men complaining? If we're only representing 25% of the workforce, even if all of us complain, would it be widespread? Would that be enough? They didn't say it was just widespread just for women. So like they're missing that whole point right there. If they went in thinking like this whole thing was going to be like, okay, we're going to focus how women are being treated. And then we're going to have this group for, okay, now we're going to focus on how minorities think they're being treated. And you can break those groups down into like the Asian groups because they have their own stuff going on with COVID and that COVID hate, Um, the Black Labs Matter, they have their own issues and even breaking them down and seeing what each individual group is experiencing. But of course, throwing us all into the same group, the minority voice is being erased by the majority and the majority is men. And the majority of men are happy with what they're doing. They don't mind not having a lot of women there. Of course they wouldn't. That's the attitude. It shows that in the report, in those little snippets that you hear from the desert. That's exactly what I am having to face. But one of me out in the desert in one location, I guess that one doesn't count enough to make it widespread. You understand what I'm saying? Like, that's how I'm trying to make sense in my head. So. Okay. Are you but that's okay? how I'm breaking it down. Like the only reason, yeah, <laughs> the only reason, well, it's just kind of like upsetting that you kind of get washed out again as a, you know, a female minority, you know, a person of color, you get that a lot. 
you get washed over by other groups because you are the minority. So in this instance, yeah, my voice, not exactly my voice, but my story got drowned out by other people. And that's what they were going for. They want to do that. We are very few of us. And when I hear employment attorneys talking about these very situations, Ellen talks about technical, right? But I'm just talking about sort of the in the trade of workplace law, real attorneys talk about protected classes. And this is an entire group of a protected class, but you don't you don't see that notion brought up in this report anywhere at all, which is a big flag. Yeah, even the quotes in there, you know, are majority male. So they're not even giving, um, I think even Ellen hit on this, like they're not even giving us a voice in there. And the whole reason why we started this report is because three individuals came forward about their horrible experience with the apprenticeship. And at that time, you would think because we started it for attention as in the women themselves, like, why didn't you give us our own group? Why didn't we have our own section? Like we should have. If that's where the key issue is, and you even said that, then you should have focused more on that. Not the whole entire picture. It's almost like, well, you know, the men need to be heard a lot more because there's a lot of them and they're very noisy. So we need to hear them. I know there's like five of you over here, but there's a hundred over here and they're very needy. And that's how it feels like you're like, okay, well, there's only five of us yelling over here and these hundred men are yelling over here. So you must have to attend to them. And that's where I feel like they should have given us more of a voice and they should have gave minorities more of a voice and they should have broke that down more. They literally complained about their percentage of Native Americans because they're less than 1%. Well, where was the quotes? You should have gave that less than 1% a bigger voice because there's less of them. You need well, to empathize I mean by protected class who that's are the less problem. than and that are underprivileged. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like they should have brought that all in there. Then themselves complained about having low numbers for Native Americans. And yet where was a quote for any Native American? Did you speak to any of them? You know, you could have threw some more diversity in your reporting. They didn't. So I'm giving a legal term that I hear about protected class. There are some other legal flags you wanted to raise, Ellen Mackey. One of the things that came out in the report is that the EEO process goes from an EEO manager who does an intake interview, and then apparently it goes to legal, and legal makes a decision whether it is serious enough to warrant an investigation. So legal got themselves in there, and they can apparently afford to hire investigators. But when we hear that Gina had a countersuit against her threat assessment from last November. So someone countered that with saying that she was racist, essentially. And that's why that person's redacted in the child group? Believe so. They also redacted my name as the one who reported it. So yes, everybody, I'm the one who reported it. Um, (laughs) And since legal makes the decision that that countersuit was important enough to pursue against Gina when she legitimately said she didn't feel safe, They mined the investigation, found someone who said something about her saying something about white boys, and then brought that forward. When we went through the investigation, and I have Gina's permission to talk about this, one of the questions or one of the areas was her use of gender-inclusive language on workplace signage. And I sat there and went, really? Legal thought that this met the bar for seriousness? and had to be pursued with these investigators who flew to gene camp. 
and this is what they thought was important. This is so insulting. Well, it's a, it's the so double amazing. standard is pretty, the double standard is really disturbing. It was, I, I started laughing and I, I had to stop them and go, wait a minute, are we talking about Gina using gender inclusive language? And that is what you are literally questioning her on right now? I went, oh my God, just go ahead because this is so hilarious. I can't even believe this. But legal, because it has to go past legal, thought that met the bar? People being attacked, people potentially losing limbs in terms of safety violations. None of those do, but this did? The use of gender inclusive, I mean, it sounds to me like the legal staff should get fired. Well, can we, while we're talking about that, those kinds of thresholds, also there's the worker safety. Was that not a purview? Because Gina's case has a good deal to say about, um, she has some specifics about where she was subjected to unsafe work conditions. But that, was that not the purview of the Shaw Group? And if it wasn't, if we can you know, uh, get some understanding why. Well, uh, they said at the, in the very first paragraph under introduction, they had three things, conduct an independent review of allegations of systemic discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, and related concerns, to evaluate the district's current policies and processes for handling EEO issues, and three, make recommendations. So it didn't. Well, no, but Which is not harassment could be how a pregnant woman is handled in unsafe conditions for Absolutely. anybody pregnant or not. So if Gina would like to speak to that at all. Uh, yeah, I would say they didn't actually, what it looked like to me is that they just got paperwork from HR, whatever they investigated, whatever they wrote down and was like, looked over and was like, oh yeah, that's good enough. Instead of really opening up their own investigation and reinvestigating it. Because plain and simple, me going out there working, regardless of being pregnant, any kind of condition at all, we have a workplace safety policy on heat related work. And being over like 115 degrees and working somewhere where there's no electricity for a fan or no AC, nowhere for a cool down spot, we're violating our own safety policies doing that because we have a threshold. I think it's either 80 or 85 and you're supposed to be in different working conditions, having many cool breaks. And my supervisor expected me to work 10 hour shifts in there at seven months pregnant. And nobody in the summertime works like that. We find a lot of our indoor jobs, you know, in the extreme parts of the day so we can cool down because that's just deadly. It's very deadly. So thankfully, I had a lot of people that came in and checked on me. Never my supervisor. My supervisor, Hector Enriquez, never came and looked on me. But I had <laughs> many groups of uh, workers come in and check on me and uh, make sure that I was okay. But it got so hot where I had to, to tell Hector, like, I can't do this. I can't go in there. I can't work like this. It's too hot for me. And then he gave me a hard time about it. So um, if the workplace safety is a purview and it's a survey throughout this report, why would this not qualify for that? Why didn't we see that kind of data point in the report? I have no idea. Like, that's the thing is like, where are they getting their information? I mean, there's a lot of names they can redact from interviews and stories. and it seems like they didn't want to give a lot of information unless they just don't have it on them or they didn't do it. And I think listeners are also as, as concerned as what was the situation with your pregnancy? Did you, were you able to safely deliver your child? I actually, my doctor at the time who 
already by this time I this was my third child and she's delivered all my kids and she was actually aware of my supervisor stressing me out because I wasn't gaining any weight towards the end because I was so stressed out that I wasn't eating as much and like towards the end like every morning I had to go get up and go to work like I cried because I didn't want to go and be harassed by you know by Hector so um my doctor ended up taking me out uh, shortly after these uh, incidences of working in the heat, she took me out on stress and my son was delivered healthier in that aspect because he she took me out of that situation. So there was a, out- a difficulty with your with your ch- child thriving in utero. So that is a hugely concerning data point. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I gave them my doctor's notes and everything like uh my uh, doctor supported me through this when I, when I first filed against Hector. Like she even talked to their doctor and they came back and told me that my OBG was not qualified enough to vouch for me to take me out on stress to be qualified for like medical leave and all that to be. So they- Which met, pers- which met personnel made that determination? Do you know? Their doctor, they have their own doctor. Randall. Yeah, I might've been him at that time. I don't- I forget what the doctor's name was. It was a med physician that made that call. Yeah. And he's just a general physician too. And he's telling me my OBG, who is a general physician for a pregnancy woman, is not qualified enough to make those decisions for me. So is that something that you contributed to the Shaw report? Yeah. And I did. That does. Oh my goodness. So like that information is, you know, it's out there and like, I don't know if it's part of any of that stuff, but I did send it to them. They do have that stuff. By the way, the Shaw Law Group did acknowledge that having a doctor follow up and second guess your primary physician is not appropriate. So that's something that Metropolitan does. I don't know why. I think they don't trust employees. They just don't believe employees when I'm not concerned about employees lying so much as I am about managers and upper and uh, middle management and executive management. We don't trust them. They will say what they need to say. So the Shaw did find in favor of employees who had their own medical people. The Shaw found that not to be an acceptable practice. To it's overrule. not an acceptable practice. And I routinely tell people that I represent, tell your doctor, if you're getting a doctor's note and a Dr. Randall calls, tell them to just shove off. Tell him nothing. He has no authority to interfere. Okay, people okay. Not, don't interact do him so that he doesn't have a role in what yeah, your he, employment he status is. Ask. Yeah, he has no authority to ask your doctor the time of day. So there is a physician that is contracted or is an employee of the Metropolitan Water District that makes these he, calls still? Yeah, because he does our yearly physicals too. He comes in and does everyone's physicals. He's the one that looks at all our medical leave and approves it. Do you know what it. kind of physician? I don't know what kind of physician he is, but we also deal with his, I don't know what Clara Massonette is. She's his nurse, I believe. Or Ellen, do you know what her position is exactly? I don't know what her position is exactly, but I know she's in charge of all of the medical stuff. I am interested in what kind of a practice, if it's so that we understand what the met, what kind of calls are making with that. And is there, there's only one assigned throughout the whole bureaucracy? Yes. Yes. I would like to know what his credentials are. Where did he come from? Who is he? Why is he there? I mean, I mean, that's, that's a pretty large call for workplace safety. And this person has staff that can be 
assisting in the paperwork while he is and and how often he goes out into the desert. He only Did Dr. Randall go to you? No, he didn't even talk to me directly. I only talked with Clara and she's the one that told me Dr. Randall, not Dr. Randall, but the doctor said that your OBG is not qualified to make these decisions. And I'm like, how is she not qualified? She's literally a pregnancy doctor. Like she's supposed to be in charge of me. Even my counselor, he didn't agree with my counselor because even my counselor wrote a note to him because my doctor referred me to counseling to deal with the stress at work at this time. So they dismissed my doctor. They dismissed my counselor and they both talked to him on the phone. Like they both talked to Dr. Reno and my counselor even like she shared with me. She's like, he was doing a lot of hemming and hawing. He wasn't even clear on everything. And she's like, it sounded like they were just trying to muddy the water and discredit you. So my counselor was even like flabbergasted that they weren't taking this seriously. Her and Dr. Weiss. This was really hugely, hugely disturbing. It is. It's like I said, checking a box. So they want all these numbers of women to come in. But what environment are you bringing them into? Just like any other place, like the military had to clean up. They're still cleaning up. They want women in there. They want to be more equal. But we know that it's not fully safe for women to go in the military. There's stuff that happens to them, assault and harassment all the time that needs, you know, they're constantly trying to improve. So for us to be like uh, ignoring this is a big deal. We're never going to get beyond this. We're never going to be able to keep women in these areas if we don't address the issues now. And that gets at the purview of the Shaw Group. To what extent did it include the recruitment and recruitment strategies of the Metropolitan Water District since the lopsided representation of men throughout the bureaucracy? The purview first and the analysis of that. I'm not (laughs) even sure they addressed it. They reviewed some, I'm thinking of interviews at Metropolitan when they're talking about promotions. They said they reviewed information and documents from HR. But again, I think part of the issue, what happened is they spent so much face time with HR, they started believing HR. So I was really disappointed when when they talked about recruitment, they didn't find any problems with it in terms of promotions, at least. When we know, and I'm going to discuss this right now because it's something I've been holding back on, One of the assistant group managers got her daughter hired. She had to leave her group, move to another group because she knew her daughter wanted a job. So she left the group, went to real estate and stacked the interview deck with her friends in the group that her daughter was applying to. Well, guess who got the job? And and that's that's in the survey. They gave it a glancing review, but not opening up that case study. No, they didn't. And you can sign anything you want. You can sign anything you want talking about conflict of interest or whatever, but say it ain't doing. What we're finding is they simply dismiss it and do what they want. And there is language where Metropolitan will say to the union, go ahead, file on it. We don't care. We're doing it anyways. They say that. And that's what we're stuck with. But the Shaw Law Group didn't dig deep enough to find any of that information. So we were very disappointed with how superficial their investigation was. It seemed like they just spoke with HR about different issues. Because when you read the the document, you can see the tone changes when they're talking about HR. And suddenly they're promoting like Alicia King, how wonderful she is. Try talking to that woman when you're not her equal or you're not her superior. If you're a subordinate, she's extremely dismissive. So Ellen, give us again her Alicia King's exact title at the Met. 
Right now, she's one of the strategic partners, quote unquote, strategic partner. None of the three strategic partners from our experience has been effective. They were people who wanted to be promoted, thought they should be promoted. They hadn't been doing particularly well from our perspective. And another suggestion from a person within asked me who said, what we really need is an ombudsman, like a position of ombudsman to the, to the desert. And suddenly management took that idea and made these strategic partners who were supposed to be strategic, I guess, but they're not. They're not doing their jobs well. I know one of them is watching me and my time. So I had to file an EEO complaint. This is what we face every day. So I'm trying to look for the quote here from that strategic partners section there. And, and you can tell when they are, the Shaw Group is leaning heavily on some of the institutional kinds of refrains. And, and that's when it gets muddied. <laughs> I'm looking at this human resources strategic partners, I'm quoting from the report, are building relationships with managers and becoming trusted resources and coaches and managers are responding positively. So that's part listeners of the platitudes in the report. It continues, I'm quoting them, a minority of employees still struggle under managers with poor management skills or with coworkers who have not adapted to changing social norms in the workplace. HR's training unit has partnered with the water systems operations managers, the human resources strategic partners and employee relations to provide high quality training to improve the leadership skills of new managers. So that kind of obfuscation pairs with what we heard in this kind of uh, obfuscation at the rollout Tuesday by the Shaw Group principals is they kept talking, though they've provided data, but as Gina points out, there's data, all right, but it's not clearly conveyed and it's a problem to see where there can be a commitment to reforming and operationalizing how the workplace is functioning. Just to, that's my editorial comment in the middle of this interview. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. And I, I want to say the summary of recommendations. There's one of the quotes is, although the district appears to be moving in the right direction on EEO issues. Well, look two pages earlier, page 27, date of the most recent incident since 2020 to the present, there's 52% increases in EEO complaints. And women in the desert, there's a 50% increase. From three to five years ago, there's 21%. Six to 10 years ago, 17%. 10 plus years ago, 10%. 52% is going in the right direction? So that's what they're looking at. We're giving you data and we're giving you some false interpretations. Some muddled yeah. interpretations. So it's really an abomination of a professional document. Remind me again, ladies, the number of employees that the Metropolitan Water District calls. There's over 1,800? There are over 1,800 people. And so it's in terms of insurance policies, we got to keep looking for another insurance company to look after the well-being of 1,800 employees. Because the men, yeah. so I mean, the adage here is, if some workers aren't doing well, it really it makes all workers not do well, all employees. People who think they don't have a problem do not benefit 
when they're working with people that do have a huge problem. It does affect everybody. It's the same in terms of social justice. People aren't doing well because the social justice does not exist in our society. Agreed. And so this is a microcosm of what's going on in society, but we still have people who are insisting that they care, even though someone like Shane Chapman can admit he doesn't know anything about systemic racism and the ex-GM could call women prostitutes and drug addicts poor, dumb people making the same dumb, poor mistakes. That's the attitude we're dealing with from the top. And it goes all the way down to people in the desert and that's captured in their quotes. So that's not a toxic work environment. The reason the, the last GM could let women languish in the desert is because he thought of them as poor, dumb people making the same dumb, poor mistakes. I went, uh, when, when he said that to a room full of women, essentially, I went, oh my God, that's the reason this has been allowed to go on this long. That's what he thinks. That was the most clarifying of his position was that one statement. Yeah, and I remember you mentioning that in previous interviews and this Shah group missed it. Findings does not build confidence in improvements being made on the status quo. So I would like to respectfully ask Gina how you're doing today. This is nine months you're on the paid administrative leave. And that's a data point that's missed too in the report is what an outlier that is that somebody has been on this long who's not being charged with offending a policy. You're, you're the receiver of poor policies being implemented. So I'd like to just know how you're doing right now and for us to take stock of that with you. I'm doing pretty good for, you know, hanging out in purgatory pretty much. You know, I'm glad I get to see my kids, but I still have this dark looming shadow over me of whether I'm going to go back to work or not. Cause no one from this company is telling me anything, you know, I finished and I did my part and I showed up for my investigations back in March of this year. And here I am still almost in August tomorrow. Uh, have no idea when I'm going to return to work. And, you know, it doesn't help the situation. Like they said, um, you see what kind of tone it is out in the desert for me. And the longer they keep me out, the more it discredits me, I guess it would say, or makes it look discrediting. They need to start believing the victims. They need to believe women. I saw that hashtag today for the Olympics during, I think some of their fencing competitions, there's one guy in there that's accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault of other teammates, female teammates. Recurrent reportings and, at Columbia University and elsewhere. And uh, he's on a separate track, but he's still there. And he's still there. He's still yeah. able to troll people electronically. So that's been actually called out in mainstream media that he still has his ways of interacting with people that can be toxic. Yeah. And a lot more people and uh, women are challenging that, you know, that idea of what's going on with him compared to other people. Obviously, we need to stop and look at all these situations because it's not just metropolitan. It's not just this company. It's a problem on a whole for our country that we are disrespecting women. And we need to believe them when they tell us things happen because forever now we've never really given women the benefit of the doubt. And we're finally coming to that. Women are feeling more empowered. And that's why we need to keep pursuing this. Even though the Shaw Law Group was 
weak in their overall statement and trying to cover up, you know, what was really going on, we're still going to speak out and we're still going to ask you to believe the victims and believe women and when they come forward. So I'm discouraged that I'm still here in this position, but I'm not going to stop fighting. So you've got a strong work ethic. You talked about, I think it was the very first appearance on Ask a Leader, Gina Chavez. Are you still going out when people ask you for assistance? 